Adventures in Learning for their children's church time. And so Noah's Park Adventures in Learning, you are dismissed for that children's church time. Normally, when somebody starts out a message, they don't start out with a heavy question or a deep thought. They start out with kind of an attention getter. And sometimes it's a joke. Since I'm terrible at joking, I've never really started out that way. Timing is everything, and I don't have it. But on top of that, we don't want to just get right into the middle of things sometimes. Well, today I'm going to do that. Today I'm going to ask you a question. I just want to get right into the middle of your heart and right into the middle of your thoughts. I want to get right into the middle of where God has you today. And the question is this. What in your life commends you towards God? What in your life commends you towards God? What makes you look good in front of God? What helps build you up in front of God? What makes you worthy in front of God? And many of us will answer that question biblically correct. We will say the answer to that question is nothing commends me towards God. Nothing makes me right in front of God of my own doing and free will. Nothing proves me in front of God of my own capabilities. And we would rightly answer that. But yet, so much of our attitude and actions in this world are about things that make us feel good. About things that make us feel important. Because somewhere along the line, the feelings that we get have equated ourselves to a right life. And that couldn't be further from the truth. But yet, we do that. If we're a good athlete, then all of a sudden we take pride in the prestige of being a scratch golfer or a good baseball player or or, or even just rooting for the right team. And all of a sudden that becomes part of our essence of who we are and builds up into the gratification of our right standing, at least in the eyes of others. Maybe we're good at some craft or good at some hobby and, and that becomes the what perpetuates us forward in the eyes of others and we find validation in that. And whatever it is, those are just trappings or maybe it's just our looks. You know, some of us are blessed to look better than others, right? And you see that because the magazines put that out in front of everybody. And we say, well, that's what beauty is like. And if we somehow have been given that from birth, somehow we think it accredits us something. Or maybe it's wealth. And our bank accounts look really good. And and we think that, you know what, God must be blessing me because he likes me. And therefore, my bank account's really good. You see, that, that is actually a normal way of living that God has called us to separate ourselves from. God has called us not to go down that road of thinking our self-worth or, or, or anything that we have that's worth anything is tied to those things uh, of this world. There is nothing that commends us to God. And many of us, before salvation, would, would, would say, we thought we were something until God showed us we were nothing and we readily agreed with God we said God I, I, I am nothing my righteousness is nothing my, my, my looks are nothing when the passage of scripture was shared with us the grass withers and the flower fades we realized right then that we're the grass and we're the flower and we're withering and we're fading but the word of the Lord stands forever there is something solid that I can attach my life to and that's the word of God and we would readily agree with that as salvation was to be discovered and we were discovering it 
But somehow after salvation and we start learning how to live, and we start learning that we can memorize Scripture, and we start learning that we could justify our acts because we're trying to be biblical, and we, we start learning that, that we're not like the rest of the world, all of a sudden some sort of pride starts to well up in the lives of Christians at time where all of a sudden we feel like we're commendable in front of God because the same truth is still evident in your life today as it was before salvation. Your works are still filthy rags before a holy God. The only thing that changes your works is when God is the one doing the works through you. And Isaiah 64, 6 is still applicable today just like it was then that says, but we are all like an unclean thing. All of our righteousness are like filthy rags for all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away and, and and when we have Christ there is no righteous act that you do that makes you any better before God than before you were saved the only difference is that when you have Christ you have righteousness fully and completely but it's not something you can brag or commend yourself towards God in and through because you didn't have anything to do with God deeming it his pleasure to send his son to die for your sins you didn't you weren't in that council meeting and yet God did that and Paul is one of the greatest recipients that has been put center stage and front and foremost of one that has been saved by the grace of God. And not only has he been saved by the grace of God, he, he, he dares not commend himself to God in any manner whatsoever throughout all of his teachings and in all of his writings because he's the one that penned Romans 3, verse 20, that says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And, and when we come and we try to dress up in our own righteousness before God, we're still being entrapped by the law. That should be indicative that we still need to be forgiven of our sin. Oh, we've been forgiven full and foremost. He removes your sin as far as the east is from the west, but your feet still get dirty. You still walk in a fallen world, and you still need Jesus to clean those feet from time to time for you. And those the things that we try to mount up to make ourselves feel right before God don't work. We can never be like the Pharisee. You remember the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee? He's the one that stood and he prayed aloud and boisterous. And, and, and there is this tax collector and the tax collector beat his chest and said, forgive me a sinner such as I. And who did Jesus commend in that situation? It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. The one who realized there was nothing of value and worth in and of himself and that he needed uh, the grace of God. But we live in a fallen world and we sometimes use that for an excuse. And at the same time, living in a fallen world, we're supposed to evangelize and witness and praise and worship and walk in fellowship with one another? How do we do that without making ourselves the star of our own show? 
How do we do the works that God has actually called us to do without putting the spotlight on ourselves to show everybody who we are in Christ and to show ourselves that we're valuable at something in Christ? Because that's where we fall off the boat when we start putting ourselves in the center stage of God's works for us, thinking that you know what God really needs me to help him do this. How do we keep from erring on that side? There's some things we must remember. And one of the things I want to point to today is that in your walk with Christ, in this fallen world, where God has called you to do works, the only way you do those works without puffing yourself up and making yourself seem more important than what we really are is if we realize that it's God that gives his children everything that they need. Whatever it is that you need, God gives it to you. You don't manufacture it, make it yourself. You don't create the situations and say, look at what I did. God gives you everything that you need. Uh, Turn real quickly as we get started to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be back in Acts chapter 18 in just a second. But find your way to Matthew chapter 6. Begin in verse 25 through 24. I want to remind you of this as you're walking in a fallen world, doing the work that God has called you to do. In Matthew chapter 6, pick up in verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Well, that worry cuts both ways. That's what I was pointing to earlier when we think we're sufficient and satisfied in everything. That's a form of worry. That's a form of thinking you're the provider of all your own needs. The other side of that coin is you don't think you're going to get all that you need. Well, that worry cuts both ways, and Scripture says, do not worry about your life. Jesus is speaking what what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For the Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own thing. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I wanted to bring that as a reminder to you of what Jesus taught. Because in trying to commend ourselves before God, and trying to make ourselves look valuable before people, 
There's a form of worry associated with all of those commendations that are self-seeking. And that form of worry is I'm not valuable enough, I'm not important enough, or I am valuable enough, I am important enough, and you should honor me in that, and you're worried about what other people think and do. But what Jesus says is he says it's God's righteousness that equips you and makes the value in you worthy of something. We're receiving everything that we have from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, For who makes you differ from another? For what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? I could ask the question when it comes to football players, who's your favorite quarterback? And I guarantee you, in a congregation like this, in a state where we're located, somebody would say Tim Tebow. And I would agree he's one of my favorite quarterbacks too. But it's not because of the touchdowns he threw. Matter of fact, I hated some of the touchdowns he threw. It's because, you know what? He's a Christian that saw football as nothing more than an activity he was involved in. And that activity was a platform that gave him a stage to say there's somebody that's more important than this little brown ball. And so he lived on that platform of faith in front of the world for the world to see. And how he did that was because he realized that God is the one that gave him that athletic ability. He realized God is the one that gave him that platform. He realized God is the one that equipped him through his word with godly parents to be able to minister to people like he's ministered to them. He, he realized that all, all recognition and honor belong to God and not himself. Well, that's what I want to show you in Acts chapter 18 today as we walk forward through what God is doing with Paul. If you go to Acts chapter 18, read with me verses 1 through 7. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. So you get the trip itinerary presented to you in that first verse. We know he was in Athens. We know what happened in Athens. We know he preached at the Areopagus in Athens. We know that he stayed there for some time. And then after those things, he left. Wait a minute. It seemed like he had some followers, Dionysius among some of them, that came and said, we believe what you taught. Why wouldn't he stay in Athens? Because he's receiving from God what God wants to do with him. That's the most important part you need to get, receiving from God what God wants to do with him. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. There's God working in the activity of somebody else's life through Julius to give common com commandment for all the Jews to depart. All of a sudden, these two find their way to Corinth as well. Paul's finding his way to Corinth because he's receiving from God what God wants him to do. They meet up together in Corinth. That's the story so far as we know it. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. 
But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door uh, to the synagogue. So Paul had just left Athens, and he just came to Corinth, and he finds people. Let me ask you a question. Knowing Paul is following the prompting of the Holy Spirit and doing the work of God, would you say that Paul left Athens to go to Corinth because he felt God was moving him there? I would attest that would fit right in with his character and nature following the work of God. Well, who, pray tell, moved Aquila uh, and Priscilla to Corinth at the same time? Who orchestrated that movement? Do you think Aquila and Priscilla were happy about it? They may not have been. They were living their life, doing their thing where they were. They didn't have any plans of moving at that time. And all of a sudden, a, a decree is given, a, a commandment is made, and they have to move. So they move. Who else showed up during this time? Well, in verse 5, you see Silas and Timothy leaves the post where they were, and they travel to Corinth as well. You also see that Paul is preaching at the synagogue throughout the days while he's in Corinth. And as he's preaching at the synagogue, he's just reasoning with people. That's what Scripture says. But I, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but look real closely, if you will, at verse 5. Before in verse 5, there seems to be a change of tone in the preaching that Paul is administering at the synagogue. In verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia... Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Had he not been preaching that before? We don't have record that he had. What we have record of is that there was a strengthening of Paul's spirit when, when Silas and Timothy show up, and that strengthening of Paul's spirit enabled him to say, I've been laying the groundwork. I've been forming the foundation. God's been using me to reason with the Jews to show how the Scriptures make sense. Here is the opportunity, and all of a sudden he gives a full-blown gospel presentation to the Jews that were there. And they didn't like it. That's it, God. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've preached according to the way you wanted me to preach. I was faithful in the things you wanted me to be faithful in. Could you not sense that when Paul has spent so much time laying so much groundwork, getting ready to saturate them with the gospel, when they offhandedly dismissed him and hated what he had to say, could you not sense there would be something welling up within his spirit that might say, I'm done? Now we're going beyond what Scripture says. But we're also staying within the compatibilities of humans as what our emotions do sometimes. What our emotions do sometimes is project upon God what should be right. That's another way of saying, God, my righteousness is more commendable to you than your righteousness is to me. 
What I think is right, God, is that you would have these Jews respond to the gospel and be saved after all the work that I put into this enterprise. But what God is doing through the whole process is actually training Paul for what's next. He's equipping Paul through all that God is giving Paul in his work of ministry. You say, well, what was God giving Paul in his work of ministry? Well, in verses 1 and 2, he finds people. He finds Aquila and Priscilla, who just happened to be moved to that area because God moved them there. God doesn't permit anything. He creates everything. Not only did he move them there, but he finds uh, people and he finds a place. They give him a place to stay. He finds a platform to lay the groundwork from, and that, that was the synagogue that he was preaching at. He finds a partnership, and in verse 5, Silas and Timothy rejoin him, and that partnership strengthens his hand. Do you think Paul thought for one second that he was going to be the one that affects change in everybody's life? I doubt it. For he's the one that agreed that our righteousness is filthy rags when in Romans chapter number um, 3, he agrees and says that we have nothing to give God in and of ourselves. He finds the fact that this partnership is only something that God gave him. And he finds opposition. That's where our emotions start to take over. When it doesn't go the way we think it should go. And through that opposition that he finds, he says, that's it. I'm not preaching to the Jews anymore. I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. I don't presuppose upon God for anything. But I could just imagine God saying, well, that's what I orchestrated you to do in the first place. About time. See, sometimes God uses those things that are around us to get us back on the course that he wants us on. When he finds opposition, he doesn't just stop there because God still has a call on his life. He also finds progress. Sometimes when opposition comes into your life and problems arise, that's exactly the point in time that God is creating progress for you to walk through as well. And not only does he find progress, but he finds justice. Look at verse 7. Not justice, justice. That's the guy's name. He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. God doesn't shut this door in Paul's life and ministry for him just to say, I give up. God shut this door and changed the focus of his ministry and gave him a different platform to preach from. Oh, and it just happened to be next door to the synagogue where he was previously preaching. God brought Paul all of those things, and every one of those things was from God, including the opposition, Aquila, Priscilla, a place of a job, a, a platform to preach from, a, 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 a partnership in the, in the ministry, the opposition, and a new place to begin ministry. God brought all that. Why would God bring opposition in the midst of that? Well, it's to change our work, as he did with Paul.
in verse 6, and now I'll go to the Gentiles. Moved him to Justice's house outside of the synagogue, but ultimately God brings opposition to change you and to change me so that our independence that we've saturated ourselves with and formed in our own minds, that commendation that we bring before God, that God, I'm valuable and worth doing this because I'm me, all of those things that we build up of our own prestige and for our own honor, God has a way of bringing opposition to humble us and to rip those things out from us so that all of a sudden we have to look back up and say, yes, God, you're still in control and I'm still not. And with Paul, he moved him to this new platform because ultimately he was changing Paul piece by piece and step by step. And ultimately he changes us to the same way to show that he provides for the works in and through us and the works around us. Look at verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Did the salvations, this is just a question, come as Paul was preaching in the synagogue or when he moved to the house next door? I, I can't prove it. Because scripture is just straight line, straightforward, right here. This happened, this happened, this happened. But I think there's something about people watching you go through opposition. Watching Paul go through opposition. And how he handled it. That firmed up a commitment in their lives that, you know what? This thing that he's preaching and teaching, it must be true for he wouldn't handle it this way if he didn't believe it so. And if he believes it so much that he's going to handle it and walk through it this way, maybe I should really pay attention to it. God uses the opposition you walk through and the way you walk through it to draw other people to himself when they see the validation of faith that you possess and display. God used this to change Paul, change his platform, change his person, but he also used it to change others providing for that work around him God gave him the right relationships God also gives us the right confidence now I say the right confidence because we often create our own confidence and that's misplaced and unfounded it's not good for anything look at what I've done. And Paul could have made those claims at this point in time for his ministry had spanned over many different successes. And he could have said, I, I was the one that Jesus taught to and trained. I was the one that he spent time with in the wilderness. I was the one. He could have built his own accolades, but he didn't. And even when he does that later in Scripture, he does that humbly and meekly just to say, I, 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 he ultimately gets to the point that I, I be in the Jew of Jews. I'm still the greatest sinner. So he doesn't do it braggadociously. The right confidence that we need is the confidence that only God gives from above. Look at what he did in verses 9 and 10. Now the Lord spoke 
to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. Oh my goodness, sometimes we just need to hear that. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that what we're going through, that God is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us, that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Heights, depths, widths, breaths, nothing will ever change the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. And sometimes that's the reminder that we need. That no matter the opposition we're going through or the problems that we're facing, that God is right there with us. And that creates a confidence in us. But it's not a confidence of our own doing. It's a confidence that's from above that God is still doing and he's not through with us yet. And in the midst of that, God speaks. I am with you, verse 10, and no one will attack you or hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The right confidence is from God. Why did the Lord speak at this juncture in the life of Paul to steady his hand after he's walked through opposition? Didn't he walk through opposition earlier and seem unfettered, unscathed? It could be he's reached that point. That point where he simply needs the steadying of the word of God in a way to change his focus and get it back where it needs to be. Paul's preaching was not void of fear at times. He's still human just like you and I are. He still rises with the sun and lays down at night just like you and I do. He still eats the same kind of food. He's not taking in a glorious substance of manna that was given to him that turns him into a supernatural being. No, he He's still human. And as human, we all have a tendency at time for fear to creep in and grab hold of us. But even in the midst of his fear, whenever and wherever that might have happened, faithfulness was still the hallmark of Paul. He didn't let it stop him from doing what he ought to do. In Philippi, he, w- he preached, he was arrested, and he was beaten. In Thessalonica, he preached, they sought him to stone him, he fled. At Berea, he preached, they threatened him, he left for Athens. At Athens, he preached, and they mocked him. Now we find him in Corinth, already opposed, as he's starting this work. Perhaps he's tired. Perhaps he's weary. Perhaps he's starting to feel the power of the flesh. And God speaks to him. Why did God speak to him? Because he needed it. But do you know what? You do too. You need it, you need it, you need it. You need God to speak to you. You need to understand that he is with you. You need to know he's not going to leave you. You need to know that he's not going to fail you. You need to know all of those things. And where do you find the voice of God? My friends, if you pick up the word of God and start reading the word of God, you hear the voice of God. And God speaks through what he's already said. He teaches you through the truths he's already given. He shows you his compassion that is unmatched in this universe. 
universe. He shows you His power that can never be overcome. He shows you His love that is deeper than deep. He shows you every essence of who He is through His Word. And when you encounter God faithfully, time in and time out, week in and week out, then fear becomes one of those things that starts to dissipate and go away. And the oppositions of this world, you look at them, you go, they're not good, they stink, I don't like those things. But at the same time, you go, greater is He that's in me than He that's in the world. And you're able to walk through this life knowing the power and presence of God because you've actually been meeting Him face to face in the Word that He's given you and that weariness and that tiredness and those ailments of flesh. He begins to get victory over time and time again. And you're able to say, God, there's nothing commendable in me to you. But oh, in you to me, everything is commendable. Your righteousness, your power, your glory. Thank you for giving those to me. Perhaps Paul needed that. And his confidence is being placed rightly through the provisions that God has given Not only does God give us right confidence, through that right confidence, He gives us the right works. You can beat yourself up trying to figure out what you need to do for God. You can run from one meeting to another meeting, from one consultation to another consultation, from one calendar event to another calendar event, and you can lay out all of these grand ideas about this is what I'm going to do for God, but if they're not the works that God has ordained and given to you, they're just works of, well, trying to commend ourselves back to Him. We saw in verse 8 that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed. What an amazing testimony that is. And others. We saw in verse 9 and 10, the Lord spoke to Paul. A work that we can't do without. But look at verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He planted himself. A year and a half teaching faithfully. Oh, just because Crispus got saved doesn't mean the opposition stops. What happens when the ruler of the synagogue gets saved? The rest of the synagogue says, hey, bud, it's time for you to go. You couldn't confess Christ as Savior, as being the Savior of the world, one who resurrected from the dead, and still be a ruler of a Jewish synagogue. Those two things wouldn't go hand in hand. And so the new leader would be brought into the synagogue, and the whole congregation that comes and goes, and the rulers of the synagogue would say, hey, you got to watch this guy. He's trouble. He's an enemy. And he'd be put on high alert for this Paul guy that's preaching next door to the synagogue and what he's preaching. And for a year and a half, he stays there and he preaches even through any opposition that may have come during that time. And you find it in verse 12. It was there. When you get to verse 12, you read, When Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary 
to the law. Now they're referring to the Greek law. They're trying to use the new judge that's been put in place in order to condemn Paul. And so they bring this charge to him. That shows you that for that year and a half, they've been plotting and planning, looking for their opportunity to jump. But opposition did not stop people from believing. Look at verses 14 and 15. That opposition was also countered by the what God had to give. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoings or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. Gallio said, It's not in my ballpark. Not something I want to deal with. You guys deal with it. What what happened? God gave Paul a victory in the courtroom. He gave him a judge that was not going to condemn him for the preaching they was at. Now this judge by all means is law. And yet God used him to enable Paul to keep on doing what Paul is doing. God gave the defense. Look at verses 16 through 17. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Y'all get out of here. Cleared the courtroom. Drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of it. Sosthenes, he's the guy. He's the one that replaced the former ruler of the synagogue. He's the one that was warned about Paul. He's the one that in the council meetings over the year and a half period was probably saying, we've got to do something about this. It's not good. He's preaching outside of our synagogue. It's not good. People are believing about this Jesus that rose from the dead. He not only took Christmas from us, but he's keeping other people from coming to us because of the preaching. What are we going to do about it? Oh, we got this new guy. Galileo's going to be the judge. We'll bring him to him and... Surely if we bring this law that you can't worship other gods than what Greece establishes, what Rome establishes, surely we'll be vindicated. Well, not only did that not happen, but they beat Sosthenes. Surely nothing good could come out of that for Sosthenes, right? After all, he was the one opposing Paul. He was the one wanting to get rid of Paul. And Paul just simply remained faithful in the midst of whatever opposition was going on and trusted God through it all. Surely, that's where it would end. But I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 2. And if this doesn't bless your blesser, I don't know what will. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and who's that? Do you read Sosthenes there? The, the ruler of the synagogue that got drugged before the 
judgment seat and beat just simply because he was trying to do what he thought he should do and get rid of this Jesus preacher, the Sosthenes that replaced Crispus and was already for a year and a half trying to figure out how to make things right again, the Sosthenes that all Paul did was faithfully preach week in and week out from the place that he was positioned, the Sosthenes that could have very well been hardened against God forever is traveling with Paul. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, what, who's he writing to? The very place that Sosthenes was, the ruler of the synagogue. Bottom line is, our commendation has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with how we try to figure things out, how we try to craft things for what we think will bring the greatest glory to God. Our commendation before God is just simply that we're faithful in what he's called us to do. And Paul was doing that week in and week out for a year and a half, preaching from the porch, overlooking the synagogue, never knowing what God was going to use it for. First of all, to reach Crispus when he got vacated from the synagogue, but secondly, what he was going to do to reach Sosthenes. He had no idea. And our faithful job is simply to say, God, we want to receive what you have for us. But be careful. Because sometimes that might be opposition. But be thankful. Because sometimes the Sosthenes might get saved because of it. If you're ready and willing to receive what God has for you, then you're ready and willing to say, God, give me the right relationships. And some of those uh, are not going to be amicable. God, give me the right position. And some of those are going to be difficult positions. God, give me the right. And when you start laying out that request before God, you realize that any right acts that he gives you is because he's the giver of righteousness. And all of those things are working together to accord for his glory and God will make others right by making you right first I tell marriage couples this quite often when they come for counseling when you enter a marriage it's not a 50-50 deal because all you're bringing into marriage is two broken half people at that juncture marriage is a 100-100 deal And if you're not well with God and well with yourself before you come into marriage, that's going to be a part of your marriage. And many of us have worked through those situations coming in broken together. And that's God's redeeming grace. But whenever God gives us the right things that he wants us to have, it's so that we can be faithful to him through it all no matter what. Listen, I love you guys. Let's lean into him for what he has rather than what we try to figure out. Father, we love you. We thank you for the fact that every good and perfect gift comes from above. We thank you for the fact that we can't engineer and make those for we would be proud and puffed up if we could. And I just pray, God, that as we enter these times of what I've heard is doubts, 
that God, that we would be looking to you to have a word from you to steady our hands in the midst of the work you've called us to. And that God, with you having spoken, that we'd be ready for whatever you have next. And Father, I just lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.